You are listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Today's Global IQ Minute is with Sebastian Malaby, a two-time Pulitzer Prize finalist and the author of the recently published The Man Who Knew, The Life and Times of Alan Greenspan, which won the 2016 Financial Times and McKinsey Book of the Year Award. Presently, Mr. Malaby is the Paul Volcker Senior Fellow for International Economics at the Council on Foreign Relations and a contributing columnist at the Washington Post. Sebastian, welcome to Texas. Great to be with you. So since Prime Minister Theresa May was just in the United States, let's start our conversation with the United Kingdom and Brexit. In 2015, you helped establish infacts.org, a web publication making the case for Britain to remain in the European Union. So were you surprised by the vote? I was not totally surprised if I thought that it was bound to be the case that Britain would stay in the EU. I wouldn't have put my time in to try and fight that outcome, but you know, I tried. We put together a good operation, fact-checking claims about the great things that were supposed to happen if we left. In my view, intellectually we won, but politically we lost. If there were a redo, Mm. and perhaps there will be, but possibly not, would there be a different result? you think? Because there were these articles and so forth and surveys afterwards that some people really didn't understand what it meant. Well, there was some anecdotal stuff going around to the effect that the most popular Google search the day after the vote was, what is the EU? You'd have thought people might have wanted to ask that question before they voted. So I think there is some sense that people voted to leave the European Union on the basis of vague ideas like they wanted sovereignty back, Maybe they didn't think very deeply about what sovereignty entails, because I think in a globalized world, nobody has perfect sovereignty. But having said all that, you know, the demographic mandate is what it is. And, you know, I think the prime minister is right in implementing that. But you say that, but isn't there perhaps another step? Because the UK Supreme Court has said that Parliament must be consulted. The formal notice can be issued, or is, is that the correct interpretation? That is the correct legal interpretation, but I think politically, Um, the fact that the Prime Minister has to get the approval of Parliament is not going to slow her down very much. I mean, in the United States, if you were to say the executive has to get something through the Congress, that makes a big difference because the Congress often doesn't cooperate. In the British system, Parliament pretty much does what the government wants. Now, last summer, right after the vote in June, all the doomsayers said that there were going to be all these serious problems, mass exodus of the UK, but in fact, the economy has has remained stable. Why is that, and do you think it will continue? I think three things explain why the economy has been stable thus far. One is that the central bank, the Bank of England, was able to help out with an interest rate cut. Second is that the currency has fallen dramatically, and so that stimulated exports, which has been good for economic growth. And the third thing is that I think consumers in Britain, faced with political uncertainty, find it so complicated to understand what that really is going to mean that they zone it out. They just carry on their lives as if there were no Brexit referendum. And you can see that in household debt, which has been rising in the last few months. The opposite of what you might predict. You might think if you've got political uncertainty, people will be scared and they'll spend less, they'll save more. But it's such a long, drawn-out process. That's right. It's drawn out and it's complex. And so people faced with complex things often just sort of push them to one side and carry on living as if it wasn't there. 
What's the most serious ramification of UK pulling out of the EU? Well, I think, first of all, it's very serious for Britain. I think Britain will pay a price in terms of dynamism going forward, particularly if it chooses to interpret its new powers to control its own border by restricting migration, because I think foreign workers have contributed enormously to the British growth story. So it, it matters for Britain. Whether it matters for the rest of the world, I and mean, particularly for the EU, I think is an open question. I mean, you can tell a story that the example set by Britain, particularly if it manages to exit and to survive economically, that may encourage populist movements across the European Union that want to leave and copy Britain's example. I think the jury is out on that. And where would that happen first? France with their elections, I, I suppose. That's right. The key country to watch is France. I mean, Germany, which has an election later in 2017, is very likely to return the status quo again. So Angela Merkel, I think, will remain the leader of Germany. France is a much more open and, and fluid situation, with polls showing that Marine Le Pen, the far-right anti-EU, anti-Euro candidate, is sort of equally number one, I mean, marginally ahead of François Fillon, who is the conservative mainstream candidate. But his candidacy perhaps is in trouble, I read this morning, because of his wife. That adds another element to the total uncertainty. The left seems likely will know more in a, a little while, but it may be that the left chooses a fairly leftist candidate as their presidential person, somebody who's probably not electable. So you've got, if François Fillon on the right has a scandal and that takes him down. If on the left, the person is too far left, you're left then with two options. There is uh, Marine Le Pen, the mm -hmm. uh, nationalist, and then there's Emmanuel Macron. Now, Macron is a sort of centrist, former banker, um, reformer guy. He was the finance minister in the Hollande administration for a bit. The thing about him is that he's less than 40 years old. And a lot of French people I've spoken with anecdotally just don't think that's old enough and serious enough. You need more gray hair. Or at least some color hair, which we have in the United States now. <laughs> As of this past week, TPP is not just dead in the water, but effectively it's drowned. What will take its place? Anything? Are we just going to see bilateral agreements? How do you see the future and how the TPP is off the shelf? Well, a vision of the global trading system based on bilateral deals, which is what the president seemed to be endorsing a few days ago, is truly worrying. I mean, bilateral deals just create a complicated cat's cradle of overlapping tariff reductions that take so much energy to figure out if you're a business and you have to think about all these different bilaterals. It's just way complicated to do global supply chains and so forth. So that's not at all an appealing vision of the future. Furthermore, if the virtue of a bilateral deal in President Trump's view is that you can exit it with 30 days notice just by writing a letter to the other side. And that's what he said he liked. That's, that's how he explained his affection for those bilateral deals. Well, I mean, the whole premise of a trade deal is to create certainty around rule of law mm -hmm. going far into the future. It's that you don't exit with 30 days notice. And if you say you might, you undermine the whole confidence building, trade promoting purpose of them. So I think that's a worrying vision. There's another kind of vision in terms of alternatives to TPP. And that would be a new super regional deal in the Pacific, but this time led by China instead of led by the United States. I'm skeptical about whether the Chinese have kind of the soft power needed to rally the Asian Rim countries to a deal that's quarterbacked by China. I don't think that's going to happen. But you saw Xi Jinping in Davos just recently making a speech about the virtues and merits of globalization and clearly making a bid politically 
to at least be perceived as the leader of the liberal open globalization. And indeed, system. the United States was barely represented. That's right. I mean, the United States did coincide with the inauguration week, pretty much. And so I think it's explicable that the United States was not well represented there. But what was more shocking, the fact that the Chinese leader came and quoted Charles Dickens and various other you know, members of the Western canon and tried to sound as global and as international and as friendly as possible. Now, you're uniquely qualified in that you carry an American passport. You obviously learned your accent somewhere else. You spend lots of time on both sides of the pond. How is Europe perceiving President Trump? I mean, I think Europe is truly in the mode of uh, shock, tinged with a bit of ridicule. They can't quite take him seriously. And I think people are, are worried, you know, they, they veer between kind of mocking him and being worried by him. I think it's interesting the way that Theresa May played the meeting just now with the president, because on the one hand, she wanted to come out and meet him to try and get a bilateral trade deal discussed. But I think political pressure then ambushed her domestically, and she had to be seen to come to meet with the president and tell him that NATO matters, mm -hmm. that the global trading system matters. She would have been killed politically within Britain if she hadn't delivered those messages. So it shows you that European opinion, in this case British opinion, is very much tending to the view that Donald Trump represents a threat to the international order as they've experienced it thus far. You know, I don't want to leave you without asking you to comment on your book. It's a remarkable work that you've done, The Man Who Knew the Life and Times of Alan Greenspan. He's been described by you and others as the great maestro, but in hindsight, could he have done more to avert or warn us about the 2008 economic crisis? That's right. I think he could have done. I mean, he did go from, from hero to zero more dramatically than anybody else I can think of in American public life. And I think he was the most powerful economist in the world up until 2006 when he left the Fed. And you cannot be that powerful and then turn around and say you don't have responsibility if too much leverage is building up in the system and it blows up the world shortly thereafter. So I think he was responsible. What's interesting is that the nature of his error, I think, has been deeply misunderstood. And in my book, I try to explain that the mistake was not one of understanding. I believe he was the man who knew that finance was unstable. The mistake was one of action, that he felt politically constrained and unable to fight the buildup of leverage in the way that he should have done. He could see it, he understood it, but he didn't act on it. Because that he didn't have the political leverage? Yeah, even the maestro, even somebody of Alan Greenspan's standing, faced limits to what he could get done in Washington. And, you know, in particular, there is an alphabet soup of regulatory agencies in finance in the United States. And if the Fed says it wants to limit dangerous subprime mortgage lending, which it, by the way, did, in 2001 it did pass new rules trying to limit crazy mortgages, then the enforcement of that decision was spread out amongst a bunch of different agencies which fell down on the job because it's balkanized. And that's a political problem about American institutions which we still have not fixed. So what would be the advice you'd give Janet Yellen today? I think Janet Yellen faces a very tough challenge coming up from the White House. She's going to want to raise interest rates. Higher interest rates it equates to a strong dollar. And a strong dollar is bad for manufacturing jobs in the US. And that's not what Donald Trump would like since he was elected with a promise to help blue-collar workers. So I think the system is set up for conflict between the Fed and the White House in a way that you have to go back to the early 1990s 
to see anything like it. We've been in this period where inflation hasn't really been a worry. We've had the great moderation and then the Fed saved everybody after 2008. And so essentially, there's been no fight about Fed independence. I believe we're about to get a fight. And if Janet Yellen wants to understand how to win such fights, she needs to look back at how Alan Greenspan won them at the beginning of the 1990s. So there's a good recommendation for not just Janet Yellen, but for everyone else to pick up a copy of The Man Who Knew, The Life and Times of Alan Greenspan. Thank you, Sebastian, for being with us. Great conversation. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org.